Hi there. Good morning, good afternoon, or evening, wherever you are on this beautiful planet. My name is Doreen Cumberford. I am one of the co-hosts of Nomadic Diaries. And we are a podcast which uh, basically produces insightful interviews with expats, digital nomads, and um, professionals in the global mobility field from around the world. And we talk to them about their experiences, how their worlds have changed, and the great difference that we can make by living ourselves overseas, not only for ourselves, but for others. Today, I am here to do a short and different type of recording. And this recording is specifically a, a part of sporadic diaries as a differentiation from nomadic diaries. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because we're participating in a 30-day challenge uh, of producing mini podcasts for the National Podcasting Month. So these are bare bones. There's no music. There's no um, lights, camera action going to happen with this. This is purely uh, for your listening. I am reading today from Life in the Camel Lane, Embrace the Adventure, um, a book that I wrote several years ago. And I'm, I'm reading to you the chapter about disruption. One of the reasons that, of course, um, has provoked this reading is the incidences and the situation in Gaza, in Palestine, and in Israel. And before I start reading this, I'd just like to say that here at Nomadic Diaries, we send our global heartedness to all concerned in this huge conflagration. And we know that our brothers and sisters and friends and family overseas um, are all hurting in some ways. So on June 25th, 1996, I was home on the idyllic compound of Rastanura. The perennial tranquility of that sleepy place broke with a shattering thud. Windows flexed, men settled back into place, and a muted stillness emerged out of the ether, followed by a mind full of questions. Our compound was attached at the southern end by way of stout security gates to the Rastanura refinery which processed approximately 550 barrels of oil every single day. The impact felt thunderous underfoot. I was very aware in that moment that a bunch of petroleum engineers, many of whom were now neighbors, were playing with dangerous chemicals within a mile of the house. I was also conscious that my husband's team was placing vessels that would be processing potentially explosive chemicals in the refinery. Nevertheless, this felt very distant. It didn't feel like it was a local thud. We were living in an isolated world, void of cell phones, Facebook or emails. This was just around the time that the uh, internet was emerging. The CNN cameras had departed after the drama of the recent Persian Gulf War. Waiting for news was my only option. An hour later, 
John, my husband, called to tell to let me know about an explosion at Kobar Towers, an unfamiliar name to me at that moment. Over the next five days, more details emerged. The terror TikTok. The Kobar Towers housed about 2,000 U.S. military personnel who worked at the King Abdulaziz Air Base, 50 miles away, and patrolled the no-fly zone in southern Iraq, which was created at the end of the Gulf War just five years before. There were 19 deaths of U.S. servicemen on June 25th, and almost 500 people, a mixture of civilians, contractors, and military personnel, who were injured in the explosion. Many were transported to the company clinic for treatment in Dahran. This was the first major attack in the neighborhood since a Scud missile from Iraq landed in the US Army barracks near Toy Town Mall in Dahran. That was in February 26, 1991. That incident killed 29 soldiers and injured more than a hundred people during the Gulf War. After Kobar Towers, I discovered warden messages. These missives are written and distributed by local American embassies and consulates. They are designed to inform US citizens about potential threats and recommended behaviors to manage them. They often start with, the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, the Consul General in Dahran, and the Consul General in Jeddah request that wardens pass the following message in its entirety to the U.S. citizen community. Aside. So this was our networking back then. Each area or enclave of expats had a person who would coordinate with the embassy to get the news out. After Kobar Towers, and until we departed in 2010, we would receive a notice several times a week that said something like, due to the continuing risk of terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula across the kingdom, the United States mission in Saudi Arabia reiterates its recommendation that US citizens exercise caution in places frequented by foreigners. On the day of that Kobar Towers bombing, the level of the alert was low. This peaceful sense of well-being was going to be threatened very frequently from then up until 2004 when an incident at the Oasis compound occurred. And finally, it seemed that much more decisive security measures were taken. So aside now, I was, I had just arrived in Saudi in uh, December 1995, and uh, we were living on this beautiful little compound, which was like a bit of a beach town. It was, there was nothing there. We weren't, we weren't in town. We were on our own separate little community, which was um, guarded by the beach by a very long, tall fence. Um, with some security on the top of it. Um, because our housing was attached to the petroleum plant there, 
then what it meant was it was a refinery and therefore our housing had everything we needed to be comfortable. There was a commissary, there was a post office, there was a, a little florist store, there was a dining hall, there was a restaurant, there was a golf course, there was a, a great restaurant at the golf course. And it was charming. It was small. And it was a huge culture shock after coming from a great, the great city of Yokohama in Japan. And I just remember the day that the Kobar Towers bombing happened and how I really got a reminder once again that life can change in an instant. So we call this, I call this portion in the book, um, the disruption. And um, the notes that we got from then on from the embassies and the consulates were, yes, they were useful. Yes, they were important. Yes, they were something we should listen to. But you know, when you hear something on the news day to day to day to day, it just becomes almost like it's absorbed into your subconscious and we feel like we didn't need to pay much attention to it. Um, so I think that was my point in writing this is that um, disruption can happen in an instant. We can never prepare ourselves fully for it, obviously, but um, we can be paying attention. So I'm going to read another portion about disruption. This is called Ground Zero? Question mark. On September the 11th, 2001, I stood on one leg in the kitchen at the stove, stirring dinner with a wooden spoon. Our television was on, and I was watching the morning news on CNBC at our home on Nomar Trail in Dharan. It was 5.43 in the early evening. After many years of wonky and intermittent TV service, peppered with Arabic music, pictures of the king receiving various dignities in long lines, we finally, oh joy, had access to regular U.S. programming in the form of CNN and the Today Show, which I would watch in the early evening. Good Morning America had quickly become a staple and was connecting us back to life in the U.S. and around the globe in a way that delivered a sense of normality and balance that had been missing for me up until then. I, along with half of the globe, watched as reality folded into the event now known as 9-11. Shock and dismay crept up my spine as we watched in real time as a second plane hit. Within 15 minutes, my phone rang. I'll never forget my friend Teresa wisely commenting, this world will never, ever be the same again. I felt a visceral lurch in my gut and streams of alarm shot through my body. As part of a response to this event back in my recently adopted home country, the US. If planes were being flown into buildings, how could we ever go back home? It would take a plane to get there. That was my first thought. The feeling of isolation, of being cut off and wondering what was happening was similar to what everyone else around the world wondered. How strange the fleeting thoughts are that pass through one's mind during a flight or a fight reaction. Many of us wondered, are we safe here? If there is an organization called Al-Qaeda, are they here in Saudi? Even more worrisome, 
Are they on our compound? Are they my neighbor? If they are my neighbor, how will I know this? Al-Qaeda operatives were indeed discovered nearby eventually and immediately spirited away according to the rumor mill. While we were living at ground zero, well, we were not living at ground zero. We were, were we close to the genesis of all of this violence? And if we were close, how close were we? All these crazy thoughts were running around inside of me. 100% of the Saudi people I had met and had interactions with up until then had been delightful, mostly because I rarely, if ever, saw the dark or extremist side, and even out in the community, enjoyed pleasant exchanges with all the locals. Investigations quickly revealed that several of the perpetrators were possibly from the kingdom. This immediately threw an entirely different spotlight on the situation. Shock and mental confusion were my first responses to this. The massive organization that is Saudi Aramco Security went into action. I assumed they were interfering on our behalf, not. <laughs> Extra guards were visible, partly around the school. My friend Jane taught at the elementary school in the hills. One day after 9-11, she had bus duty. And as the buses arrived at the school and disgorged their precious cargo of kindergartners through fifth graders, Aramco security guards were very much in evidence. Up until then, security had behaved like any terror terrorism was simply mischief and kind of background noise, Jane says. Everyone showed up at the school the next day feeling like they had been punched in the stomach. Administrators, teachers, aides, and all of the adults arrived with the same preoccupation. As the kids started getting off the bus, a very grandfatherly Saudi guard, Ahmed, with a long beard and a typical compassionate disposition, walked up to Jane, pointed to the sky, brought his fingertips together in a symbol of prayer, and simply kept repeating, same, same, one God, your God, my God, your God, my God, your children, my children. Essentially, his message was, I care about these children like they're my own, and I am here to protect them. Buried in that statement was the heart and soul of most of the Saudi people. Here was a Saudi telling an American that although a great crime had been committed on home soil in the United States, he personally felt connected to us, and he was willing to do his part to protect our kids if called to do so. Jane shared with me what a powerful experience this was for her. This expression of sympathy was common from Saudis we knew and went a long way to calming our anxieties. Anne had developed a kindly relationship with the Saudi supervisor of the gardening department on camp after her arrival. He seemed to take a very personal interest in her garden. And shortly after 9-11, sure enough, Mohammed showed up at her house, rang the front doorbell and stood on the doorstep, wringing his hands. He came to apologize if she was experiencing any pain or fear as a result of the behavior of any of his fellow citizens. 
The sentiment seemed sincere and deeply heartfelt. Anne was very touched by this. Anxieties remained, however. A pall fell over the entire community. Westerners kept their heads down and for the most part didn't mention the situation at the office. At gatherings of expats in the dining hall for lunch, they kept their tone moderate, acted as if nothing had happened and played close attention to their surroundings. Many witness Saudi colleagues who appeared to be gloating or celebrating as if with a bit of glee that the U.S. had suffered. Although there were reports that a few Saudis were secretly celebrating, I personally never experienced that. Whether urban myths or just gossip, this was to include stories of female Saudi dentists who held a party to celebrate 9-11 and ordered cakes baked in the shape of the Twin Towers. Although it's entirely possible they were already holding a party, this they just had come up with this as a simple creative idea. We will never know. Reports emerged of entire de departments where Westerners were being shunned for a few weeks. It was entirely likely that unskilled intercultural interactions were rising to the surface. We humans are not programmed to be perfect and everyone was managing the best they could. Other departments endured stoicism and behaved as if they had just read the British World War II poster. Keep calm and carry on. Some expats were found huddled together in cubicles comparing notes and closely monitoring reaction on the part of the Arabs around them. It was common for a Western expat to be the only Westerner in that office. And many told me it was a very isolating time period where banter between the cultures subsided and there was a definite cooling in relationships. Jackie was an administrator with a drilling group working closely with Western drillers and Saudi management. On September the 12th, she went to work as usual, the only Western female working with a group of intelligent Western educated Saudi males in that department. Years later, she recalled those days. I have to say it was the quietest week, she recounts. People would not look at you. Nobody talked about it. No one looked at each other. It was business as usual, only with a very uneasy feeling. We were all processing and awaiting more information. She emphasized how positive her professional work experience had been with that particular group. The Saudi men I worked with were very respectful more than any group of men I've ever met. They did not look directly at me very often, although they appeared polite and kindly, quite different from some of the US and Canadian drillers, she says. As foreigners, we were concerned for our physical well-being. If there was a coordinated effort against the West, were we turning into soft targets? The, way, the fact that Saudis were implicated was stunning to us, but mostly we enjoyed a co collegiality between our cultures. 
Jackie wondered whether what her American family and friends were going to say about her remaining in kingdom. Were they going to criticize me for making money and working here? And how would they view me after that? She was extremely philosophical and focused on the lessons she took from this experience. You are very much the product of your life path. If friends and family back home want to criticize us, fine. For many, it took a rebellious attitude and some courage to, cho to choose the road less traveled and to remain in kingdom after 9-11. Throughout the offices, at the commissary, and around the compound in general, were whispered conversations where Saudis would mumble. We don't understand. We're just as confused as you. These are not people of the book. This is a deviation, not natural. This is not who we are or who we want to be known as. Several of my friends and I had Saudi women approach us in the malls, expressing confusion and disorientation around all of these events. They seemed so sincere and benevolent that I felt inclined to believe they had nothing but good intentions. Otherwise, they would not normally have approached us. Despite our most positively inter our most positive interactions in the local community, many extremists and traditional locals believed that while the US essentially rescued Arabia during the Gulf War, their beliefs and their religion, along with traditional practices, had been steamrolled in the process, and their values had been crushed. Our countries did share some common interests but we did not necessarily share common values. And this period of disruption shone a light on the difference. In conclusion, I really am sensing and feeling the experience of being back there during that time. And um, I would just like to once more offer global hearted prayers for what's going on in our world today. I hope that you have possibly learned something or enjoyed something from this reading. And thank you for listening. Please share, like, subscribe to Nomadic Diaries. You are appreciated. Signing off, Doreen. <laughs>